Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. I want to say welcome this morning. Uh, glad to see everybody here again. Um, as we kind of continue this, this series, we're on a third lesson of this series on prayer. We're looking at prayer and what it means and all that kind of good stuff. And, and I, I think that this is just such a hugely important uh, element of the Christian life. And, and really, too many of us as Christians, we kind of struggle with this. We struggle with prayer and we struggle with consistent prayer. We struggle sometimes with powerful prayer or prayer that feels like it's effective. And, and, and you know, so some of us end up kind of uh, avoiding prayer or, or, you know, kind of, uh, you know, maybe like not just, we, we just don't have the right feelings about prayer because it's something that should be enjoyable. It's something that should be refreshing to us as Jesus followers. It's something that, you know, we should love speaking to and, and hearing from our creator, but it doesn't always feel that way with prayer. And so we're spending a few weeks kind of working on our prayer education. And that is a made up word. That's not an actual word. You won't find it in Webster's. But we're kind of looking at prayer and, and, and maybe taking a step or two back and, and saying, okay, well, why do we pray at all? And how is prayer even possible? And, and what are some of the challenges that we face and kind of how, you know, how can we move past those things? And, and last week we looked at things that kind of get in the way of hearing back from God, which is so important because prayer is meant to have an answer. Hello. Prayer is meant to have an answer. You should expect an answer and a response to your prayers. And really for some of us, like that, that comes as a shock or it, it comes as a surprise and it really shouldn't. And it, because there are so many times when it feels like we don't seem to get a response, right? But it just doesn't even make sense that God would create the possibility of prayer, that God would institute the, the idea of prayer, you know, and tell us we can call him anytime, tell us we can speak the name Jesus and feel his closeness and his presence and then never respond. Like that just does not makes sense. And, and so there are some things that we can check, and we looked at that last week, and, and make sure that we aren't intentionally or maybe even unintentionally kind of plugging in, our, you know, plugging our own ears. And, and then we saw in week one, uh, you know, Jesus's closest disciples, his closest followers during his time here, in his ministry here on earth, uh, they saw Jesus do amazing things. And they saw huge crowds of people, five and, and 10,000 people crowding around Jesus and to be healed and to, to be fed. And there were all these miracles that happened. And then it seemed like after a long day of being with the crowds and doing all of these amazing things and saying all of these amazing things, they would see Jesus kind of pull off by himself. And he would retreat to a place of prayer. And not, not only would he do that, but he seemed to enjoy prayer which doesn't always seem like it's what we feel when it comes time to pray. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew. Everybody say, often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And it seems like a lot of us go to prayer and find a wilderness he went to the wilderness and found prayer. And there's a, there's a big difference there. We could preach on that for a bit. But as the Jesus movement was becoming more and more popular, Jesus depended more and more 
on prayer. And the wilderness is lonely, man. The wilderness is, it's not comfortable in the wilderness, right? And not a lot of this natural life grows in the wilderness. But apparently the wilderness is a, the perfect place to grow things, not of this natural life, but of the supernatural life. And so his closest followers saw this undeniable connection between his prayer life and the amazing things that he did. And so they came to him one day and they asked him, but they didn't ask him, you know, Jesus, will you teach us how to do miracles? They didn't ask him, Jesus, will you teach us how you, you moonwalked on the water? They didn't ask him, you know, hey, when, you know, that boy gave you the five loaves and two fishes and you supersized that meal like to the extreme, right? They didn't ask him, will you teach us how to do that? But they asked him one thing. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray because they saw the connection between his prayers and what he did for the kingdom of the Father. And so Jesus told them, okay, I'm going to teach you how to pray. And so when you pray, start with Father. Start with how you see your relationship with the one to whom you are praying. And if you call him Father, then that means you see yourself as a child. And so see yourself in your inability but then see your heavenly father and his infinite possibilities, amen. And that's the attitude we should have when we come to prayer. I am a child of God and I come and I say, father, father, father. And I'm kind of belaboring that point and driving it home because it has so much to do with what we're going to talk about today. And today I want to explore at least one aspect of praying, but not getting what we ask for in prayer. And I don't pretend that I'll cover every aspect of it. I don't even promise that I'm going to answer all of your questions today. But I think for some of us, what we're going to see today, if we can wrap our minds around this, wrap our hearts around this, if we can see what we talked about in week one as well, it might give us some peace. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that we'll find a renewed confidence that we can expect an answer when we pray. Because prayer is meant to have an answer. Now, how many of you know that you should never go to the grocery store when you're hungry? You should never go to the grocery store when you are hungry. Now, a little pro tip for all the husbands out there. Chelsea no longer asks me to go to the grocery store ever. Because when I go to the grocery store, I like shopping like shopping, shopping if I go. And you can ask her, when I go to the grocery store, I'll I'll buy a lot, hello. I like to walk the aisles and just see all of the options and they play such delightful music in there and just the temperature is always set just perfect, right? And if it's a really hot day outside, you can actually go to the freezer section and open up the doors right there by the chicken wings and just kind of cool off. A little bit. If you do take your shirt off, they will call security. I just want to warn you of that. But you can see so much. There are so many things at the grocery store I didn't even know I needed. And so I'll come home and be like, babe, I didn't even know there were five types of cheese, but I bought two packages of each one. Right? I bought four boxes of Cocoa Pebbles because they had a sale going on and I wanted to save a lot of money. I didn't want to save a little bit of money. So to save a lot of money, you have to buy more. Whoop, that went right over some of y'all's head. I, I, buy, <laughs> I talk about buying Cocoa Pebbles, and those that have been coming to City Grace for a while, you guys know that I still enjoy Cocoa Pebbles. But at my age, I am really starting to enjoy brand cereals. Can I hear an amen from the 45 and older crowd? <laughs> 
But the, <laughs> I even heard some woos. <laughs> yes, amen. Uh, but you know, th- there's research actually behind this. Grocery stores actually study this stuff. That when you come into the store, they arrange the store intentionally to kind of feed on what they know the most common appetites are. They want to trigger certain things in your brain. They know if they can get you to buy based on your belly instead of buying based on your budget, right? You will spend more because you will find yourself wanting more. You will spend more because you will find yourself wanting more. And when we perceive that we have a need, like I need that, I don't have that and I really need that. Or maybe I could put it in a different way when it comes to life, right? When we have kind of an immediate need, something that we are desperate to get our hands on, desperate to see happen in our lives. If there is something that is grabbing our attention because we are aware that we don't have it, It turns out that we are really horrible at knowing what we really, really want. And in fact, we can think we want something and it turned out to not be what we want. And we can think that we don't want something and it turns out to be what we really, really need. In fact, I I bumped into this whole concept. It, It was a quite a while ago now, I can't remember how many years ago, there's this book called Sway. And the subtitle is The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior. And it was written by a neuroscientist and it was actually fascinating. And he, he wrote this book because he found himself one day at the grocery store in the cereal aisle for 30 minutes trying to decide which cereal he was going to buy. Because he went there for one kind of cereal, but when he got there, there were so many other kinds of cereals that just looked better. And so he thought, what what is going on here? And what he found was that when we have a crisis, when we have no clear direction, no outside source feeding us good information, or when we have an appetite driving our decision-making, we often do not choose well. We can see this playing out in all, just in everyday life, right? I mean, you guys can kind of tell I'm kind of, because I'm preaching, I'm kind of starting to like tie this into life a little bit, but even still staying kind of on that surface level, we can see this happening as we get older, or maybe by the example, as we get less hungry, what we want changes, right? Or sometimes, you know, sometimes later on after we have gotten something, after we have bought something and paid for it, what we want changes, and then we look at what we have and we shake our, se- our, our head at our former selves, right? We can't believe that we bought that. Why did I buy that? I didn't really need that. And you guys know that this is true because you guys have heard of things called garage sales before. Garage sales are proof that what I'm talking about is a truth. Even at shorter lengths of time, we shift from wanting meatloaf when we're hungry to wanting ice cream once we're full. Meaning that as our appetites change, what we want changes. Appetites can change based on what you have or what you have experienced. And we know this just when it's, when it's dinner time, right? But when we're younger in life, we're hungrier, right? We are caught up in an appetite. We will do almost anything. We will pay almost anything to get what we think that we want But once we get older, we realize that sometimes what we thought we wanted wasn't what we really wanted after all. Married people stay really still and really quiet during this part of the message. Right? 
What we thought we wanted wasn't what we really wanted after all. Like sometimes we thought we wanted to be right. So we got into an argument. We put somebody down. We insulted somebody. We marginalized someone or criticized their intelligence. And we ended up hurting someone. We ended up breaking a relationship. And what we thought we wanted wasn't really what we wanted once we got what we wanted. Right? Or we thought we wanted one relationship and then we thought we wanted another relationship and things just went all sideways with that. Here in the Bay Area, we commute. Fairfield's a bedroom community. There are times when we think that what we want is more money. But that more money comes with a longer commute. And then we end up spending more and more time away from the family. And we look back years later and our kids got old without us being there. And what we thought we wanted turned out to not be what we wanted after all. And as we get older, we start valuing things differently and appreciating different things and different behaviors. And hopefully this thing called wisdom comes with age and experience. But we all probably can look back over our lives and see things that we really, really wanted at the moment, right? Status and, and parties and, 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 and crowds and cars and concerts and relationships, all things that we thought we wanted. We were convinced if we just could get that, if I could just date him, if I could just date her, if we just made that much money, if we just lived in that neighborhood, then I would finally be happy. And then five to 10 years later, we look back and it wasn't the case. It just wasn't the case. Now, I've told y'all before, and I told Chelsea I was gonna tell this. I, I, I was engaged before I was married to Chelsea. And there's a lot of things to not say about that and nobody here knows her so it all should be fine but I can remember the night I proposed to the other one not to Chelsea <laughs> but Chelsea I didn't propose because it, it didn't work the first time you can ask Chelsea my proposal to her was hey what are you doing on Saturday she said nothing and I asked her if she wanted to get married and she said yes and we ran away and got married that Saturday and we have lived Happily ever after. She is so, so blessed. Yes. God has smiled upon her, shown her great favor. Amen. But I remember the night that I proposed in my first engagement. It was the 4th of July because I wanted fireworks but didn't want to pay for them. Another pro tip, you can find really good deals on flowers at cemeteries, but that's another side point. But listen, this is horrible, but I'm getting to the, I'm like old enough now to where this isn't as embarrassing now. It's kind of just a cautionary tale for everybody else. This is really horrible. I can remember the night I proposed, I went back to my room, turned off the lights, laid in the bed, looked up at the ceiling, and I said, these are my exact words, God, you have to get me out of this. The night I proposed, that's what I said. I was so glad I did not pay for fireworks. But we all have decisions and choices. And look, I'm, I'm being a little bit funny, but really, if we're all honest, come on, I'm talking big stuff. Like we ended up with a mortgage. We ended up with a car payment. Hello. We ended up with a divorce. 
We ended up with a job that we did not want. We all have moments when getting what we wanted got in the way of getting what we found out later we really, really wanted. And then we have other times when we got things we never thought we wanted and they turned out to be some of the best things that ever happened to us. Like a kid. Anybody ever accidentally have? No, I'm just kidding. Don't. <laughs> Saw some hands go up. They're all in Sunday school right now. Yeah. <laughs> He's preaching right now, my dad just said. Thank you. The therapy has almost cured me. I'm, I'm doing better, but we too. But then kids turn out to be amazing, right? Amen. And uh, they, they love us. And for those three years that they think we're heroes and perfect, it's amazing. And, but kids always want to do what kids want to do. And part of our job as parents is to teach them, don't do that. Tell them, don't do that, right? Somebody said you spend the first two years of their life teaching them to walk and talk and the next 16 years telling them to sit down and shut up. (laughs) But we do, and part of our job as parents is to teach them to value things that are best for them, not to just run after whatever they want in the moment. That's part of your job as a parent. Or here's another one. Sometimes kids make a mess and then they try and help clean it up. And they end up doing what? Making a bigger mess. Yes. Don't we all wish we had someone to teach the adult version of ourself to value what is best for us instead of just chasing whatever we want in the moment? Right? Right? Because if we always do what we always want to do, we will end up in places and with consequences that we never wanted. Because we're not very good at knowing what we really want, especially when it involves pain or an appetite. And listen, appetite, that can cover a lot of things. Greed is an appetite. If you start chasing money, you'll never have enough money. Sex is an appetite. Hello, if you start chasing sex, you'll never be satisfied with your sex life. Sex is an appetite. That's why sex is such a horrible reason to get into or get out of a relationship because it's an appetite. And if you let an appetite run your life, you will ruin your life. We are horrible at knowing what we really want, especially when there's pain or an appetite that's driving our decision-making. So we all know this. These are all things that we get, but what does this have to do with prayer? Well, it turns out when it comes to unanswered prayer, this has a lot to do with prayer because we don't always know what we really want. The things we just talked about was nothing new. These are things we all know, like the grocery store. We're not very good at knowing what we really want like pain and appetite that can influence what we think we want. Like sometimes getting what we wanted ends up making us regret getting what we wanted. Or knowing that sometimes what we think we don't want ends up making us really glad we got it later. All the parents know this. If you've ever tried to give your kid medicine, right? And then lastly, we all know, we all know this, that it is always a good idea to have someone wiser than us to guide us to value what is best over what we want. 
So why is it then that when we pray, sometimes we get frustrated when we don't get what we think we want? Hello? We all have unanswered prayers. And we get frustrated sometimes over unanswered prayers when really to unanswered prayers, we should be saying, thank God that was an unanswered prayer, right? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts yeah, there we go. Rita, I caught you. I thought I'd catch at least one country western fan. You know, <laughs> even Garth Brooks knows this, right? This is all stuff that we know. But here is the absolutely beautiful thing about praying to a good, good father. I want you to hear me this morning. We always, or we don't always know what we really want. We're not always sure if we're really worthy or deserve to get what we ask for. We're not even sure sometimes how to ask for or what to ask for. But listen to me. This is the beautiful thing about praying to a good, good father. This is why week one was so important. Because in that embarrassing awareness of our inadequacy, when we are made utterly aware of our inadequate worth, when we are made painfully aware of our inadequate knowledge, when we come face to face sometimes with our inadequate faith, in our struggle between belief and doubt, in our wrestling over, I don't even know if I should be asking this, I don't even know if I deserve to be asking this, you can know that who you are praying to is a good, good father. And it doesn't matter if you're inadequate. It doesn't matter if you don't know enough. It doesn't matter if you haven't deserved it or earned it he remains good come on and clap your hands and give him thanks this morning in other words we absolutely get it wrong sometimes but he is the best person to get it wrong with and he will teach us and he won't push us away he will embrace us and he'll never leave us on our own he will do what is best for us. He will do what is best for us. Thank God. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Amen. In fact, we started talking about Jesus, you know, started off talking about Jesus' closest disciples asking him about prayer. I love this. In Matthew chapter six and verse seven, Jesus is teaching them about prayer, teaching a big crowd about prayer. And he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Anybody ever feel like when you're praying, it's just babbling? I'm not sure what to say, but I better say a lot. So I really got to impress God so I can earn this one, right? And Jesus is like, just stop. Just stop. Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Why? Because you have a father. For your father knows what you need before you even ask. That's beautiful. That is so reassuring. That is so calming to my fretting and my anxiety and my worry that he is my father and he already knows what I need before I even ask. And parents get this, right? It's after dinner, almost bedtime. 
Your kid comes to you and they're crying. They're throwing a fit because they can't get the green helmet onto the who's a watch it toy. They're about to have a meltdown. They're rubbing their red eyes and they're about to throw a fit because they can't get the helmet on there. Hello, parents. What do they really need? Sleep. How do you know that? You're not even there. Hello, it's a universal truth. We all get it. <laughs> and, but sometimes when it comes to prayer, we think that a good God doesn't really know what we need. I'm not even sure God understands. I'm not sure God even knows. If we, as limited as we are, can know what a child wants in their moments of distress, how much more, and God of infinite wisdom, a father of infinite knowledge, how much more does he know what we really, 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 really need? Not what you want, but what you really need. Hello, because I'm, talk, I'm talking about serious things now. Pain is real. Life brings heartache. The situation is serious. You are turning desperate. And all I'm saying is we need to remember who it is that we are praying to. And he is a good, good father. So before we accuse God of being absent, before we accuse God of being stingy or being deaf, maybe we remember the words of Jesus and tell ourselves that my father already sees and my father already knows what I really need. And I can trust. I can trust my father. See, but it takes, I, th I think it takes big faith to kind of turn the corner on this. I really do. I think it takes big trust to kind of come to the point in our life where we stop asking for what we need and ask God, or start, stop asking for what we want and ask God for what we really need. And if you know what I'm talking about, if this is resonating with you, you might think, you know, hey, I've missed this before. Listen, you're not the first one to miss this and you won't be the last Jesus follower to miss this. In fact, Paul, who steps onto the pages of Christian history is a man named Saul. He hated Christians. In fact, you know, if there's a Christian or two that you're not very fond of, Paul would have hated them. If you know a Christian or two you'd like to see arrested, Paul would have got them arrested. He hated Christians and then he met the risen Jesus and it completely changed his life and he changed even his name from Saul to Paul and he didn't hate Christians anymore, he became one. He didn't throw them in jail anymore, he started bringing people to church and he went all over the Mediterranean Rim starting new churches, new little Jesus gatherings. And so you gotta imagine this, this fire plug of an ambitious man. I mean, he would not be denied. He was always on go, like the Energizer Bunny for Jesus, just energetic all the time. And about the first 30 years of his life or so, he grew up Jewish and he, he hated Christianity. Around 33 years old or so, he got converted. In the last 30 years or so of his life, he was a Christian. He didn't just hate Christians, he became a Christian and he began influencing people to faith. And so he started living out the second half of his life with a fire in his belly for Jesus. I mean, he is doing amazing things that even the other apostles aren't doing. Seeing miracles and seeing people converted in places they never would have dreamed of seeing miracles or seeing people converted. I mean, Paul is just on a tear for Jesus, doing the right thing, being the right thing, saying the right thing, working the right things. And then something happens. 
And we're not exactly sure when. History's not exactly sure on it. Roughly just about, just before the halfway point of that final 30 years of his life where he was a Christian. And he wrote about it in a letter to a church in a city called Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, he said, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given something. So Paul is looking back on his life. Paul is remembering when this thing came on him, when this thing began being present in his life. And he's saying, now that I've seen a lot, now that I've experienced a lot more, now that my appetites have shifted my perspective, I can see that there was a danger in my life that I couldn't even see. I had a blind spot that I didn't even know about. There was a danger that everything was going to become about me. And that I would think that I was God's gift to the world and and that what I had to say was what everybody needed to hear. There was something lurking in me, Paul would have said. And I couldn't even see it. So I was given. Now this is really important because the Greek word that we get this English word given from, it's the word that we would use like if you're giving a gift. Like if you gift something at Christmas time to someone. It's almost like Paul was saying, I was not just given, I was actually given gifted. I was gifted something in my conceit. Now notice he does not say I was afflicted with something. He doesn't say that I was punished with something. He doesn't say I didn't take my vitamin C and I came down with something. But he said it was a gift that I got. Well, what was it, Paul? What did God give you for Christmas? Paul goes on and he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. Some of y'all are thinking, I didn't know my boss was in the Bible. Paul said, I was gifted a thorn. I was tearing things up for Jesus. I was turning the world upside down for Jesus. I was teaching everybody to sing. There's something about the name of Jesus and God gifted me a thorn in my flesh. Hello, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And every time I would move a certain way, it, it, you know, I would flex a certain way, I would do a certain thing or say a certain thing. It was like a, a thorn and I just couldn't get it out and it kept poking me and it kept irritating me and it kept hurting me. And Paul said, it was a messenger from Satan sent to torment me. That, word, that Greek word there that we get torment from, it means to like beat up, like a bully would hit someone with their fist, literally to hit someone with their fist. And we're not really sure if Paul was saying that it was actually a messenger from Satan. There's some debate I read on this or, or if it's just like, you know, sometimes we'll say that something hurts like the devil, right? That, that really hurts me. We're not sure what, what exactly was going on there. But what we are sure from, from the text is that Paul said it was not random, And it was not a punishment, but that God actually gave me a gift. And this gift was a thorn, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Now, what is it? We don't know. Some historians and theologians think that Paul suffered from epilepsy. There were episodes in his life when he would speak or when he would try and travel and he'd be thrown into epileptic fits and people in those days didn't know what was going on with epilepsy. They couldn't figure it out. 
Some historians think that Paul battled with depression when you look at what he went through in the book of Acts. And then one of his later letters, he actually talks about going through trials and saying at one point, I despaired of life itself. I thought even life was just, it was just all without meaning. Some people think that he had a debilitating eye disease. We know from his letters that Paul couldn't see very well. There are no corrective lenses or LASIK surgery back then, so he probably had really bad headaches. But Paul tells us that this gift came. And then Paul tells us in the next verse that he didn't always see it as a gift. It was only once he got older, only once he got wiser, that he looked back at what came on him and called it a gift. But Paul tells us in verse 8 what he originally thought and tried to do with this gift. Three times he said, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. This wasn't just a simple request. This wasn't just something he kind of included when he would pray over his food or send a request through the City Grace app, but probably at least three seasons in his life where this debilitating thorn that had been given to Paul was so bad that Paul would fall to his knees and begin to pray and plead with God, would you please take this away from me? This is too much for me to handle. I can't keep on doing what you want me to do. I can't be who you want me to be if you let this thing stay in my life. I'm ready to give up, God. I am despairing even of life itself. Please, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Take this away. Take this from me. Anybody ever had something in your life like that? Just please, God, would you fix this? Please, God, I, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not really sure, but please, would you, would you take this away? And you wonder why God doesn't take it away. And you wonder why God doesn't hear. I mean, isn't he supposed to be good? And why do I have this pain? This can't have come from you. You're a good father. So please, please take this away. And listen, some of us have thought, or maybe some of us have even been told, that the reason that you're suffering and the reason you're enduring that is because you have been somehow bad or evil. God is punishing you. Baloney. Look at Paul. He's working for God. Starting churches everywhere. Doing all the right things. And still, he gets this gift of pain and of torment. Some of us have been told or have thought that we're not praying hard enough. Baloney. Paul prayed harder than all of us put together. Paul talked in his other letter to the Corinthians that he said how he was glad that he spoke in tongues more than everybody. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, there are some times when I pray, I can't even get words out. It's just these groanings that come, and I can't even put words to what's going on. It's not because Paul wasn't praying hard enough. People tell you, well, you must not be desperate enough. You must not want it from, from God bad enough. Paul was desperate, more desperate than maybe we ever get. And there is something to be said for prayers that break your heart. Listen, I'm not trying to say that no prayer should ever break your heart. Paul prayed these prayers with a broken heart. Paul cried. Paul groaned under the burden of what he was dealing with. But that's not the reason that you haven't gotten your answer. 
That's not the reason that you haven't gotten what you are asking God to take away. And sometimes we think we're not good enough or holy enough or haven't done enough good to earn the answer to prayer. Look at Paul. Again, that can't be the reason sometimes. But Paul shares what allowed him to endure God not taking this away. Paul said, I wanted God to take it away. I pleaded with God to take it away, and he didn't take it away. But something happened that allowed me, finally, on that third time, something came over me that allowed me to handle what God had gifted to me. This is how I was able to get up off of my knees from my prayer closet and take another step and face another day. This is how I was able to take a deep breath and square my shoulders and and go back out to fight the good fight. This is how I could get up and wipe my eyes and dry the tears and see through my pain again and again. This is so beautiful. This is something we need to remember when we come to God in prayer. And it's just a few simple words Paul said, but he said to me. But he said to me. Now for some of us, I think this is the sticking point in prayer. I don't think we're bad people. I don't think that it's that we don't trust God. We do trust God. We do still believe. We do keep on keeping on. We would be willing even to tell God, I can even take no for an answer, but would you just say something back to me? Hello, somebody. God, would you just speak to me? Like, not in a dark house when I'm all by myself, you know, like, but in the daytime somewhere when there's lots of people around. God, please. (laughs) Please. Hello, somebody. But just let me be clear. Let me be assured that you hear. Let me be assured that you see. Let me be assured that you know so I can be reminded that you are a good, good father. And to somebody here this morning that you have been praying and you've been pleading and you've been asking God and you've been wondering what you are doing wrong because you haven't gotten your answer. I'm just here to tell you this morning, I may not know exactly why, but I know to whom you are praying. I may not understand his incredible wisdom and his infinite knowledge, but I know all about his heart. I'm telling you that he is a good father. Don't ever doubt it. I'm telling you that he does hear your cries. Don't ever doubt it. Don't let those voices get in your ear and tell you that God doesn't care. I'm telling you he does care, and he is working it out for your good. But sometimes you have to trust. You have to trust what you know about him in spite of what you cannot see or cannot hear in response. And it seems like Paul is telling us, yeah, the first time I went through this, I prayed. Man, I prayed for weeks maybe, Paul prayed. But he heard nothing. And Paul would tell us, I feel your pain if you're going through it. Because I remember the second season in my life when I wrestled with this thing. And man, it was painful and it was, it was lonely. And it seemed like God was nowhere to be found. And I fasted and I prayed and I pleaded and I groaned. And I listed out to God all of the things that I had done to deserve this. And, and it just seemed like I still never heard anything back 
from God. But that third time that I prayed, that third season that I went before God with my broken heart, that third span of days when I couldn't think of anything else or focus on anything else, I broke down and I pleaded and God said to me, he spoke to me. Listen to me. God wants to speak to us. His voice is available. Paul said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, what God told him was no. See, no is an answer. We want an answer to our prayers. And boy, we do testimonies. We tell everybody in the world when we think God answered our prayer for a new car. Hello, somebody. I prayed for a new car and I got a new car. We don't tell people when we prayed for a new car and God said, no, the one you have is fine. Hello. We tell everybody about restored marriages. We don't tell about the times we prayed to God about our marriage. And he said, no, you go take her on a date. Oh, whoo. Mm, I thought I'd have more lady amens on that one. Hello. We talk about all the times that God has healed us. But we don't talk about the times that we pray for healing. And God says, no, I'm going to use it for something later on. You just endure it and trust my wisdom and my goodness. No is an answer. But no isn't the answer that we want. And so when we hear no, we doubt that God is good. But God is good. And even in the no... He says, my grace is everything that you need. You may not be getting what you are asking for, but you have everything you need because he is a good, good father. He may tell you no, he's not gonna take away the pain, but along with that, he will tell you that he is giving you the strength for your weakness, the strength to get up another day, the strength to take another step, the strength to be what he has called you to be. He said, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness, My power becomes complete in your weakness. Paul, if you handle this in your own strength, you don't need mine. Paul, if you can figure this out in your own wisdom, you don't need mine. So I have prepared strength for you, and I have set by grace that you need. And Paul's wondering, well, where is it? In your weakness. In your pain. In your suffering, we find the grace and the strength that we need. God, I want out of this circumstance. God, I want out of this trouble. God, take away my pain. But God is telling us, this is the wrapping of the gift. This is the box that I have given to you. If you will open up your pain, if you will unwrap your pain, if you will unwrap your weakness, you will find inside everything that you need. And you may not find what you want, but you will find what is best for you. 
So open up your pain. Embrace your struggle, knowing that God is by your side. Live through your temptation and your trial and your trouble and your testing because you can trust the heart of a good, good father. Look into your pain and you will find something on the inside. But it's only, it's only once we acknowledge our weakness that we see his greatness. You can only see his greatness when you finally acknowledge your weakness. Paul said, it was in my weakness that I found his strength. When I finally looked past myself, I saw him. And so later on, Paul could look back on that season and look back on his pain. And he could say, my my disappointment because things weren't going like I thought I wanted them to go was not really disappointment at all. It turns out that it was a gift. And when it seemed like I was about to lose my mind, I found his. When it seemed like I was about to lose my way, he made a way out of no way. When it felt like my ability to cope and to handle what had been given to me was taken away, that's when I found his strength. So look what I have gained through my pain. And that enabled Paul to say that I received a gift. It was all a gift now that I'm older and I'm wiser and I look back. And then Paul's not done. He goes on in verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. I'm going to boast about what I can't handle. I'm going to ask prayer for what I can't handle. I'm going to freely own up to what I cannot do on my own. I'm going to freely admit this thing had me in a headlock. I couldn't escape it. There's no way I should be where I am today. There's no way I should have the joy that I have today. But I will boast in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Acknowledge your weakness and you will receive his greatness. Paul, I heard you were struggling with this. And he would say, oh yes, and it happened more than once. But I admit my weakness because when I admit my weakness, I finally gain his strength. My pain has become my gain through Christ. And Paul realized in the end that he had been praying for God to take away what had been given to Paul for his good. Paul was praying for God to take away what God had given Paul for Paul's own good. What Paul had received was the promise that he could rest from his own efforts and be flooded with the grace of Jesus Christ. That Paul could rest from his own ability and his own strength and be filled with the strength of Jesus in his weakness, not apart from his weakness. So think about it. Think about it. If we knew that a season of pain, if we knew that a test or a trouble was a way for God to help us find more of himself, what would we say when troubles came our way? If we knew the situation that we were in, the pain that we were in, the confusion that we were in had not come to tear us down, but in fact had come from God to build us up, then what would we say? when that trouble came our way. If we were 100% convinced every single time that everything that we were facing had come through God's hand, what would we say when trouble came our way? 
I think we would say what Paul said in verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. That's a weird thing to say. I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions and in difficulty. Paul was saying, I've reached the end of me and what I found at the end of me was Jesus. What I found at the end of me was more of him. And so, yes, I'm weak. And people around me may say, hey, look who's weak and look who can't handle it. And look who's always asking for prayer. Paul would say, I'm so glad you noticed. Would you please pray for me? I can't seem to handle it on my own, but I know that God still has strength for my weakness. That's why Paul could say when life got hard, Jesus, I'm so glad life is hard. I'm so glad that I'm in over my head because when I finally admit that I can't swim on my own, that's when you will come walking on the water and find me where I am. Jesus, I love persecutions because if the enemy's trying to trip me up, I must be walking in the right direction. If the enemy's trying to turn me aside, I must be on the right path. Paul said, when I find difficult people, I'm so happy about it. Yeah, I thought that when we get quiet in here. Jesus, thank you for difficult people. I'm gonna surprise them with a hug in the morning. All the men are like, yeah, yeah, good one. Men, I, <laughs> I challenge you to hug your boss in the morning, men. See what happens. See God do something amazing in your life and heal you from missing front teeth, amen. But in difficult relationships, think about this. That Paul would say, I can't wait to feel the full pain and the weight of their offense so that I can forgive them. Because if I feel the full weight of their wrong done to me, then perhaps, Jesus, I will know how you felt when the full weight of my sin came upon you. And me being wronged and offering forgiveness in return is a way for me to know you more in my weakness, in my insults, in my hardships, in my persecutions, and in my difficulties. I can find you, Jesus. I've come to the end of me. Now flood my life with your grace and fill me up with your strength. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul, that doesn't make sense. That's because you're not adding something into the equation that I have found. There was something missing from my life that came wrapped up in weakness. And it was his grace. There was something missing from my life. And it came in a package of pain. It was his strength. There was something that I did not have. There was something that I am going to lead, need later. It was something that I didn't even realize I wanted. But a good, good father saw me in my incompleteness and knowing what was coming in my future. He packaged it up in the most unexpected gift. And now when I am weak, 
I have found the way to be strong. When I come to the end of myself, I find him. I find him. I find him. I find the one that we sang about this morning. I find the one that filled this room with his presence. I found in my difficulties and my confusion when I just, I looked around and it seems like I couldn't see God anywhere. I found a way to find him. The way to find him was in my pain. It was not once everything was perfect and everything was rosy, but it was actually in the middle of my darkest night that I I looked up and I saw Jesus, Jesus. Does anybody else in this room have that testimony this morning? Come on, all over this room. Come on, if, if in your pain you have ever found a new side of your Savior, come on, would you raise your hands with me? Come on. I'm asking for stories. I'm asking for testimonies all over this room. Look around you. Look around you with all of the hands lifted high. Come on, look around you. Look at the witnesses of everything that Paul has been teaching us. That in our brokenness and in our aloneness, when we thought everything had been lost, that's when we found our clearest view of him. When it seemed like God was the farthest from us, it turns out that that was the moment he was the closest. Come on this morning all over this room, can you stand to your feet? and Can you offer up thanks and praise for the goodness of your God? Come on, all over this room. Even if you haven't experienced it yet, can you begin to praise him for what you can trust him to receive this morning? Come on, all over this room. Can you begin to lift up your voice and tell him thank you for your trouble? Can you tell him thank you for your pain? Can you tell him thank you for the things that turned your eyes to him? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we find you. We find you. So I want to ask you this morning, what have you been praying for God to take away? It doesn't seem like God has answered. What have you been praying that God would bring you through and it just feels like you're on a treadmill and not getting anywhere? What is it that's sticking you and poking you and it's hurting you and it feels at times like it's killing you and you're pleading, you're pleading with God, would you please take it away? There are voices of doubt whispering in your ears. The enemy of your soul trying to tell you it's no use. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. He doesn't know you. He doesn't know your name. I am telling you that you can trust the heart of a good, good father. Like Jesus said, he already sees. He already knows before you even ask. Before you even ask. You don't need to try harder. Hello. I hope you do come to church more, but you don't even need to go to church more to get your answer. That's not what it depends on. I hope you do more good things in your world, but you don't have to do more good things in your world to get your answer. You can never earn your answer. The frustration of your unanswered prayer is meant to show you that it's not about you at all. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his wisdom. It's all about his presence. It's all about his strength. And it is no longer about us at all this morning. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.